In this Parsha, we learn of Moshe's death. He blesses the nation with his final breath. Moshe's passing caused sorrow and bereavement. Breaking the tablets was Moshe's crowning achievement. Okay, so this is the last Parsha in the Torah, of, and this week's Parsha is Vizot HaBracha. And uh, it actually will not be completed on Shabbat. It won't be completed um, until Simcha Torah. So anyways, um, at the beginning of the Parsha, um, the Torah is called a Morasha, which means a heritage. And Rav Gifter makes an interesting point. He contrasts what a heritage is, a Morasha, to an inheritance, which is a nachala. Um, and a nachala is, Rav Gifter distinguishes a nachala versus a morasha by saying that the nachala, the, the inheritance, is something that you can use and you can do whatever you want with it. If you want, you can destroy it, you can sell it, you can you know, get rid of it. Anything you want to, to do with an inheritance, you can do. As where Rav Gifter says, the Torah is called a morasha, which means a heritage. And Rav Gifter says a heritage is something that is really, it's the property of past generations, and it's going to be the property of future generations. So therefore, you have to preserve it. You have the duty to preserve it. And that's what Rav Gifter says the Torah, why the Torah is called a morasha, because it's not in our generation or any other generation's ability to say, you know what, I'm just going to get rid of this Torah thing and move on. Because the reality is the nature of what a heritage heritage means, according to Rav Gifter, a morasha means that it has to be preserved for future generations. And it's also the property of prior generations. So it's not up to the current generation to decide whether they want to keep it or not. It has to be kept because uh, ultimately it's the property of past generations and future generations. Moving on, so uh, the, Torah sh- the, the Parsha says that, um, that he became a king over Yishoram. And um, Rav Yehuda Halevi, he says that when it says the word king, that actually means uh, the Torah. And Yishoran is straight. Yishoran is referring to the Jewish people, but it means like an upright people. And uh, a, a, a people that have their priorities in order. And essentially the idea being that um, the, uh, the, the, the Torah has the ability to sort of straighten the people, has the ability to make sure that the people are in line. And the king ruling over Yishoran uh, implies that the Torah has this ability to really create um, a nation that is Yishoran, that the, the Torah has that, that sort of that sculpting ability, um, that, that shaping ability to make uh, a nation like the Jewish people into something more than just a nation, but rather into a Yishoran, into a straight nation, into an upright people. Moving on, so uh, we get to all the different blessings that Moshe is going to give the the various tribes. So looking first to the tribe of Levi, Moshe says that, um, or actually looking back to where um, the the blessings and curses that Yaakov 
gave all of his sons. So Yaakov told his son Levi that they were going to be cursed, that, that Levi's generations, that Levi's descendants were going to be cursed because they were such aggressive people. And as a result, they would be scattered throughout the, the nation of Israel. They wouldn't be able to stay by themselves. They'd be scattered uh, because they, were such a, they had this such a destructive personality trait of being too aggressive. And therefore, Yaakov says they're going to be scattered. As where Moshe, in his, um, in his blessing, he, he says that the Levium, the descendants of Levi, the Levium, will be teachers to all of Israel. And the Balatorim has a fascinating insight here. The Balatorim says that these are two rather similar, uh, rather similar teachings because Yaakov, he tells Levi that his descendants are going to be scattered. And Moshe also says that Levi is going to be scattered, but Moshe sort of flips it from a curse. Yaakov said it was going to be a curse that all of Levi's descendants would be scattered. And Moshe says, actually, yes, they're going to be scattered, but they're going to be scattered because they are going to be teachers and role models for the entire nation of Israel. And I think it, the, the Balatorian mentions here that it's really up to us. You know, we certain we sometimes have certain character traits, certain midot um, that are, you know, sort of set, if you want to say that. They, they, there's certain qualities about us that we can't change. Yet, with that being said, we do have the ability to make sure that those qualities are being used for the best purposes. So Levi had this quality of being too aggressive. And that's why Yaakov says they're going to be cursed and scattered. But Moshe flips it on its head and said, yes, while they're going to be scattered, the reason they're going to be scattered is because they're going to be teachers for all of Israel. So beautiful lesson for us that even if we feel like we maybe have a negative character trait, there's a certain way, a certain method that we can channel that like Levi did. He, Levi the, and the, the Levium were able to channel their aggressive nature and turn it into becoming role models and teachers for all of Israel. Moving on. So we get to the blessing for Zevulun, and Zevulun is mentioned with the tribe of Issachar. And the reason being is that um, Zevulun and Issachar, they made, a, they made a deal. The two tribes made a deal that Zevulun, they would earn money, and in exchange, Zevulun would support Issachar for, uh, would support Issachar's Torah learning. And the Orachayim has an interesting comment here that the Torah, that, that Moshe's blessing to Zevulun, again, Zevulun was the one that earned money, is that, Levul, that, that uh, Zevulun should rejoice in their business dealings, that they should enjoy their business. And the Orachayim says, wait a minute, you know, we, we know that we're not supposed to take too much enjoyment in material pleasures, too much enjoyment in, you know, business and mundane business things. So why is the Torah saying that Zevulun should enjoy their their business ventures. It seems like that, that goes against a general Torah value to not, you know, get too obsessed in your own physical uh, well-being. So the Urachayim says that the physical well-being that Zevulun earned, because it was being directed toward Torah study, as a result, um, basically the Urachayim says that a person can only rejoice in sort of physical, material well-being 
when it's used for a positive and spiritual purpose. And Zavulan, because they channeled their money and they used it to support Torah study, as a result, they, the Orachayim says that Moshe uh, is telling Zavulan that they should enjoy and they should rejoice. They should, uh, they should have simcha in their ability to, um, in, 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 their, in their business dealings. And while normally a person isn't allowed to enjoy their business dealings, because Zavulan, um, because Zavulan's business was directed toward Torah study, as a result, then Zavulan has that ability and um, has, the, has the encouragement from Moshe to enjoy uh, even something as mundane as their business ventures. Moving on, so we get to the tribe of God. And God, he, uh, if, if you remember this, the, the tribe of God, they wanted to, uh, in, in a few prior parshas, they actually wanted to seemingly separate from the rest of the Jewish people and actually live outside of the land of Israel. And at the time uh, when the tribe of God uh, asked Moshe whether they could live outside of Israel, Moshe criticized them very sharply by um, saying, what are you? Are you like you know, your past descendants um, that wanted to be like the, like the uh, spies? And uh, really, Moshe really criticized the tribe of God for not wanting to be with the rest of Israel. Yet, in Moshe's blessings, it seems like Moshe takes a very different approach. Because here we see, um, in Moshe's blessing to the tribe of God, Moshe says that, uh, that they will, the tribe of God is positioned to protect all the other nations. Because the tribe of God was sort of positioned along, right outside of Israel. So anyone that wanted to come and attack Israel had to first face the tribe of God. And as a result, this tribe of God was there as protection for the rest of Israel. Um, and in addition to that, they, Moshe also seems to compliment the tribe of God on wanting to be where Moshe would ultimately be buried. Again, Moshe would not be buried inside the land of Israel. And as a result, because he wasn't buried in Israel, the tribe of God, who also had land outside of Israel, would have the, the land that the tribe of, that, that uh, Moshe was buried in. And, you know, I think that this is a tremendous lesson in leadership, that Moshe, when he first heard of the tribe of God want, not wanting to live in Israel, he criticized them very sharply. Yet, I think Moshe realized, perhaps, Moshe realized that he was wrong. Moshe realized that he misjudged the situation. He thought the tribe of God was only wanting to not live in Israel, simply to separate from the Jewish people and to have, you know, more land and to uh, sacrifice Un, you know, un, um, undeservingly, uh, undeservedly sacrifice the ability to live in Israel in exchange just for more land outside of Israel. Moshe really criticized the tribe for that. Yet Moshe realizes at the end of his life that the real reason God wanted to be outside of the land of Israel is perhaps because God wanted to protect the land of Israel. And in addition to that, God wanted the portion of land that Moshe was going to be buried in. And uh, just a tremendous lesson in leadership that Moshe was willing to change his position from at first criticizing the tribe of God at the time when God requested to be separate from Israel. And in the end, Moshe realized, you know what, that was misdirected because really the tribe of God was only wanting what's best for Israel by 
being willing to be their protector, and in addition, wanting to have that portion of land where Moshe would ultimately be buried. Moving on, so the Jews, they, um, the, the, the Torah says the Jews will dwell in Israel um, solitary, in, in solitary. And Rashi comments that there's no need uh, for the Jewish people to live in big groups in Israel because um, those, those big, you know, the, the only reason to live in big groups is, uh, according to Rashi, in order to fight off enemies. But basically, there would be no enemies in the land of Israel. And as a result, they'd be able to live sort of uh, by themselves in solitary. And uh, I think it's an interesting lesson that good times, when we don't have too many enemies, we sort of have the flexibility to live a little bit more by ourselves, a little bit, uh, you know, and more in solitary, because when good times, when there's no enemy, we don't necessarily have that same need to gather in big groups, and we can spread out a little bit, have our disagreements, etc. When there's no attacker, we sort of have that privilege uh, to be able to spread out a little bit to disagree with one another. And I think that, you know, sometimes we always look at conflict as a bad thing, but sometimes we have to realize that conflict, the only reason conflict is able to exist is because of the fact that we have no enemies. So when we see a lot of conflict within ourselves in fighting, that's perhaps possibly a good sign. It's perhaps a sign that we have no enemies on the outside. There's no need for us to uh, unite as a nation. And perhaps being solitary, you know, isn't, you know, from one another isn't always such a bad thing because it's an out, it's a sign that we don't have too many outsiders trying to attack us. Moving on, so at the beginning of the Parsha, Moshe is called a man of God. Yet at the end of the Parsha, right before Moshe's death, um, uh, God, uh, the, the, the Torah calls Moshe an Evet Hashem, a servant of Hashem. And um, a couple interesting comments on this. First of all, at the beginning of the Parsha, when Moshe is called a man of God, um, you know, what's fascinating is every other religion, most other religions, their key leader, you know, Moshe is really one of the Jewish people's key leaders uh, throughout Jewish history. And almost every other religion, their key leader is sort of deified into some kind of God. Um, Yet Moshe he is merely a man of God. He, throughout his entire life and recorded forever in the Torah, Moshe is never someone that transcended the human realm. He was always someone that was a man, someone that he was no, you know, someone that wasn't beyond the, the, the pale for any of us to accomplish. Someone that, you know, we saw Moshe, he was just a person, a human being, and he was able to accomplish such great things. So too, I think it's a tremendous lesson in Judaism that just as Moshe was able to accomplish great things and he was merely a human, and so too all of us that are merely human beings, we also have some of that same potential, some of that same ability to accomplish great things. And it's something unique about Judaism, that Judaism, even the greatest person ever to ever, you know, one of the greatest Jews ever in Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe, he's still only called a man of God. Uh, another interesting point now, moving to the Eved Hashem, moving to the servant of God, um, there's a commentary that talks about how a servant has no independent identity. A servant is entirely working for their master, and that's why he's called an Eved Hashem. Someone, the Moshe was someone who was entirely devoted to working for the good of, of God. Um, 
So also the Torah mentions that nobody can know, or nobody has known and will ever know, where Moshe was buried. And perhaps the reason being is because a similar idea to why Moshe is called a man of God. It's because uh, if Moshe, we knew where Moshe was buried, perhaps he would turn into more of a godlike figure than he should have been. And Moshe, he's, he's merely a person. And uh, basically, you know, we shouldn't get our priorities out of whack and think that Moshe is somehow more than just a person. Granted, one of the, you know, perhaps the greatest person to have ever lived. But with that being said, still at the end of the day, just a person. And had we known where he was buried, he might become, some people might uh, get confused and think that he should be worshipped as a god. But really, the reality is, Moshe is just a person, just a man of God, but not God himself. Moving on, so we get to the last Rashi of the entire Torah. And the last Rashi of the Torah says, Yashir Kochacha, for shattering the tablets. And so why exactly is Rashi congratulating Moshe? Why is, the, why is Rashi saying the Torah is congratulating Moshe for breaking the Luchot, for breaking the, 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 the tablets that uh, the Ten Commandments were written on? And, you know, it seems like if this is going to be Rashi's last words of the Torah, if, this is, if the Torah is really emphasizing all of what Moshe did is his crowning achievement, it seems like, is breaking the tablets. So it raises the obvious question, what's, so, what's such a good thing about Moshe breaking the tablets? And I think the answer is quite profound. The answer is that, you know, there's this idea of the sunk cost fallacy, that it's an idea that in economics, that if we put a lot of effort, if we put a lot of money and resources and time into one particular goal, then it's very, very hard for us to move off that goal, even if the it would be better if we just left it. And Moshe, he does not have any problems with the sunk cost fallacy. He doesn't, he's not uh, beholden to the sunk cost fallacy. He's willing to let things go if they should be let go. And there's no better example than Moshe's willingness to shatter the tablets. And again, these tablets, they were perhaps the greatest human achievement ever to have been accomplished in human history. Moshe was able to go and connect with God and bring down these, these tablets that were inscribed uh, supposedly in like letters that were hovering above the tablets, and they were in white fire and black fire and uh, some types of you know, amazing magical Type of, uh, type of tablets that were sort of beyond the human realm. They were literally written by God himself. And, uh, the, the, you know, really, this was Moshe's crowning achievement, was bringing these tablets, was creating these tablets. And then he gets to the bottom of Harsinai, and he sees that, of course, the, the Jews are worshiping the, the uh, golden calf. And as a result, Moshe realized that despite creating these beautiful tablets that were inscribed by God, these unbelievable, you know, that perhaps the center of human achievement was having these tablets. Yet he realized the Jewish people, they weren't deserving of them. They weren't deserving because they were worshiping the golden calf. And as a result, regardless of how much work Moshe put into creating these tablets, Moshe was willing to shatter them. Moshe was willing to realize that despite all the work he put in, despite all the resources, all the effort, that he put in to, to make these tablets into a reality, the reality being that once he saw the, the Jews worshiping the golden calf, the Jews were no longer deserving, and as a result, he was willing to scrap everything 
uh, to, to, to basically throw away his life's work, to throw away the thing that perhaps there's, no been, there's never been a greater achievement in human history than bringing the tablets down. And he was even willing to destroy those um, just because the Jewish people weren't ready for them. And I think that's what's such, that's why the last Rashi in the whole Torah is congratulating Moshe for shattering the tablets because Moshe was not beholden to the sunk cost fallacy. He was willing to let go of those tablets. He was willing to let go of something he spent so much time, so much effort, so much tircha, so much work uh, in creating. Yet, despite all that work, despite how beautiful those tablets were, since the Jewish people weren't ready for them, Moshe was willing to smash them. And that's a tremendous lesson for leadership and really just life in general, that when we spend a lot of time on something, even if we think it's the right thing at the beginning and we spend time and effort and resources and we create it and it's beautiful, if we realize that, you know what, it's not the right course of action, we, we should be doing something else, something else would be better, then we should not only abandon them, but even according to, according to you know, what uh, Moshe did, smash them. If what we did before, if we realize it was the wrong way, we should not have any second doubts and be willing to smash our plans, smash what we thought we would do, smash our greatest achievement if necessary. And, um, you know, if, if necessary, we should be willing to throw away any past plans because if there's a better alternative, we should always follow the better alternative, even if it means leaving something that we spent so much time and effort creating. So moving to recap some of the points that I talked about, um, I started by talking about how the Torah is called a morasha as opposed to being called a nachale. And Rav Gifter says that a, a morasha means a heritage. And the reason it's called a morasha instead of a nachale is because a heritage is something that has to be preserved from generation to generation. And it's not merely our, it's not our generation's uh, it's not in the within the ability of our generation to say, you know what, we don't want it anymore, or we're going to sell it, or we're going to get rid of it, uh, because the reality is a Morasha heritage is something that has to be preserved uh, because it's the property of prior generations. In addition, it's the property of future generations, and it's not merely up to us to decide what to do with it. Moving on, so I talked about how um, the Torah is compared to a king, and it's a king, the Torah is king over Yishoran. And um, Rav Yehuda Halevi, he says that this idea being that, um, you know, a king, the, the Torah being the king, um, basically makes Yishoran as a straight people, as an upright people. And the Torah has this unique ability to sort of straighten out an entire nation from turning the nation from merely just the Jewish people into Yishoran, into upright people, into tzaddikim, into people that are worthy, into people that have their priorities in line. The Torah has that unique ability to sort of straighten out a person's priorities and turn the entire nation into Yishoran, into upright people. Moving on, so I get to, I spoke about how the tribe of Levi, um, how Yaakov cursed the tribe of Levi by saying that they were too aggressive, and as a result, they were going to be scattered throughout the land of Israel. As where Moshe, he says, yes, it's true, the Levium will be scattered, but the reason they'll be scattered is because they're going to be teachers uh, to all of Israel. And the Balatorim mentions that these two Yaakov 
prophesizing that they will be scattered throughout Israel as a punishment, and Moshe prophesizing that the Levium will also be scattered throughout Israel as teachers. Those are relatively similar sort of uh, similar prophecies, yet basically the, the, um, the bottom line is that even if we have a certain personality trait like aggressiveness that's going to cause that could cause very bad things. And that's why Yaakov says the, the tribe of Levi is going to be scattered, uh, you know, as a curse. But Moshe says, even any type of personality trait we have could be channeled in the right way. And the Levium are perfect examples of that, even though they're kind of aggressive by nature, um, the Levium were able to sort of channel their aggression into being scattered. And as a result, they'd be teachers to, um, to all of Israel. Moving on to the tribe of Zevulun and the tribe of Yisachar. So spoke about how Zevulun earned money and they would support Yisachar's Torah learning. And the Orachayim mentions that Zevulun, uh, the Torah says, should rejoice in their business dealings. And the Orachayim says, normally the Jewish people, we don't rejoice too much in our business dealings. It's too mundane uh, to be rejoicing too much. You know, it's a bad thing. It's a negative thing if we rejoice too much in mundane things like our business dealings. However, the Orachayim says that someone that directs their, uh, their, their personal, their, their well-being, their material well-being toward positive ends, like uh, in this case supporting Yisachar's Torah learning, as a result, they're actually able to enjoy even that money that they earned, even those physical pleasures, because they spent so much time uh, and effort and resources in supporting and directing their resources towards the positive of supporting Yisachar's Torah learning. Moving on to the tribe of God. So I spoke about how Moshe is, at first, when the tribe of God recommended that they wanted to be outside of the land of Israel, Moshe really criticized them very sharply by saying, how is it possible that you don't want to live with the, the rest of the Jewish people? Haven't you learned anything from your, uh, from your descendants that made the mistake with the Meraglim, with the spies? And Moshe really criticizes the tribe of God for not wanting to be in the land of Israel. Yet Moshe, he's willing to change his mind. Moshe changes his mind at the end of his life and actually compliments God, compliments the tribe of God for wanting to protect the other nations. Because again, the tribe of God was sort of on the outside of Israel. And anyone that wanted to come in and attack Israel had to first go through the tribe of God. And as a result, they were there to protect the, the land of Israel. And in addition to that, they also were the tribe that Moshe was buried in. And they, they, were, they, owned, they had the land that Moshe was buried in. And Moshe was kind of willing, basically, to say, you know what, I was wrong at the beginning when I criticized you for not wanting to live in the land of Israel. And I now know that the real reason you didn't want to be in the land of Israel is because you wanted to protect uh, the land that you wanted to protect all the other nations, all the other tribes, and you also wanted to, um, to, to have that land that eventually Moshe would be buried in. Moving on, so I talk about how the Jews, they will be, the, the, um, they'll dwell in Israel in, in uh, solitary, in solitude, and Rashi comments that there's no need for the uh, for, for, for the Jewish people to live in big groups in the land of Israel because there's not going to be any enemies. So there's no reason for the Jews to have to unite and fight an enemy. And I said that this is kind of a broader point that sometimes, you know, we usually think of 
of strife, of infighting as a negative thing. But perhaps it's not such a bad thing because it's a sign, infighting is a sign, that we don't have many attackers from the outside. So if we're fighting within, it means that we really have a, a, a time of, you know, if, we, if we're all kind of in our solitary groups and we're fighting among, among ourselves, it means that we don't have too many outsiders that are trying to attack us. Moving on, so I spoke about how the beginning, at the beginning of the Parsha, Moshe is called a man of God, and I spoke about how other religions, you know, their key um, person, they're, they're the greatest person that ever lived in all other religions, they are mostly considered a god themselves. Yet in Judaism, Moshe, the greatest human being to have ever lived in Judaism, he's only called a man of God. He's still at the end of the day, yes, he's the great, perhaps the greatest man to have ever lived, but also at the same time, he's merely a man. And he's just like you and me, he's just a human being. And uh, as a result, since he's just a human being, um, you know, he's something that is even attainable for us, that we have the ability to reach heights similar to that of Moshe, because at the end of the day, he's also just a human being, uh, a very great human being, the greatest ever, but at the end of the day, you know, just a human being. Um, also, I spoke about how at the end, right before his death, the Torah calls Moshe an Eved Hashem, a servant of God, because a servant he has no, a servant has no independent identity, works entirely for his master, namely Moshe, working entirely for, uh, for, uh, for God. Now, also, so nobody knows exactly where Moshe is buried, and the reason being, perhaps, this idea that we, there could be some people that are misled and begin to deify Moshe, to, to make him into a god, even though the Torah is very clear he's just a man. And perhaps that's why nobody knows where he's buried, so no one can go to his gravesite and um, worship him like he's a god. Moving to my last point, so the last Rashi in all of the Torah says Yasher Kochacha for shattering the luchot, for sh- for shattering the tablets that held the Ten Commandments. So why is it that the Torah ends, um, that according to Rashi, the Torah ends by commending? Moshe on breaking the tablets. Why is breaking the tablets such a crowning achievement? And I spoke about how it's because Moshe he was not behold he he, he was not uh, he was he was not subject to the sunk cost fallacy, and what that means is that the sunk cost fallacy is when you spend so much time and effort on something that you're not willing to abandon it, even though there's a better alternative. Moshe he realized he spent so much time and effort creating the Luchot. He spent maybe his entire life's work on creating these beautiful tablets that God himself inscribed. And uh, something that was, you know, probably uh, an object like the tablets will never uh, be created ever again in history. It was the only time ever to have such a touch point with God in, 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 a, you know, in, in these tablets. Yet, despite the greatness of the tablets, Moshe was willing and able to realize that when he saw the Jews worshiping the uh, the golden calf, he was willing to break the tablets. He was willing to say, you know what? I don't care how much time and effort and resources I spent on creating these tablets, and I worked with God to create these tablets. Um, Regardless of that, he was willing to destroy perhaps the greatest achievement by human beings ever in creating these tablets. He was willing to abandon all of that work 
and smash the tablets because he realized the Jewish people weren't ready for them yet because they were worshiping the, the golden calf. And a tremendous lesson for us, for leadership and just for life in general, that for leadership, if we realize that our followers aren't quite ready for what we brought them, we should be willing to completely abandon our plans. And for life in general, regardless of how much time, regardless of how much effort we spend on a certain thing, if we realize a better alternative, if we realize, you know what, our time is better spent somewhere else, we should be willing to completely abandon, to break, to break up our old plans in exchange for following that better alternative. And I think that's a beautiful lesson, you know, now being kind of at the beginning of the year, after, right after Rosh Hashanah, this idea that we should be willing to abandon our old plans, regardless of how much effort and how much resources and how much money and time we spent on them, if we realize that there's something better to chase after. And with that, I will read my poem. In this Parsha, we learn of Moshe's death. He blesses the nation with his final breath. Moshe's passing caused sorrow and bereavement. Breaking the tablets was Moshe's crowning achievement. Chazak, chazak, venit chazik. And with that, l'chaim, l'chaim.